Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, guys. Dr. Santos here, your pediatric infectious disease doctor, researcher, and exhausted father. And hi, this is Jean Biu, the empress of the encephalon, resident neurovirologist extraordinaire. In case you had not previously heard from our empress of the encephalon, I strongly suggest you go back and listen to our episode on Liberia 18, the NIH. Where you can hear lots of fun stuff about Ebola and the neurologic complications. Uh, it was a great episode. And it dealt with all sorts of future interests of medicine. But today... Well, oh, come on, Morty. We got to get back. Why was he in such a rush? He had a time machine. <laughs> Which do you think was the best back to the future? <laughs> I like one. What? You guys are out of your mind. Two was, I mean, one was a great, you know, story and everything, and we got introduced to characters, but two was prophetic. Well, I think we can at least all agree that the worst one was three. Oh, but you can enjoy the Wild West? Come on. I mean, I like the Wild West, but, like, why, you already have a flying car. Why would you invent a train? Like, just unnecessary. Did he have it flying already at that point? Well, he hadn't quite invented the patent, but that does give us an excellent segue to move into today's topic, which is patent medicines prolific through the period of the wild, wild west. We're going to be dipping into some medical history this episode. And just for those of you at home who are playing along, a patent medicine was a ready mixed component, uh, also known as a nostrum remedia, that was self-prescribed as opposed to doctor-prescribed. The ingredients were mixed together by a pharmacist for an individual patient. In England, these patents were granted at the pleasure of the king. But in America, very few remedies were actually patented. Most of them were trademarked. They didn't have to work. 
The contents could change over time, but the use of the name belongs solely to its inventor. And that's really where marketing and advertising kind of got its start in the U.S. Just off the top of your head, what are some medicine names of today? Well, like Prozac or Viagra and Aricept. Those aren't very easy things to remember, but they have a certain ring to them, I guess. Then you've got kind of these fake medicines that sometimes can have much catchier names, and I'm not going to say them because I do not need to dignify them with any airtime. (laughs) But they're out there, and you know what we're talking about. However, when it comes to famous things, are you familiar with the term snake oil salesman? These guys are quacks, the phony dudes who will sell you super expensive elixirs and so on and so forth, promising the world and they just absolutely do absolutely nothing. They're made of like mineral oil plus pepper or something like that. This is actually a really interesting bit to start this episode on because while snake oil salesman has as you noted, become a byword for charlatans and hucksterism. It turns out when I started looking into this, snake oil works. Did work, does work, can still be used. Is it used? (laughs) Snake oil is now synonymous with quackery and the phoniest of phony medicines. (laughs) You know, somebody who's a snake oil salesman will promise you the world, take your money, and will be long gone before you realize the product in your hands is completely worthless. But (laughs) the original snake oil dates back to the 1860s, the times when the railroad was being built in the U.S. Sometime around when Doc Brown was ruining the third Back to the Future installment. Ah, yes. Back in the Wild West. And at this time, Chinese laborers immigrated to the United States to work on the Transcontinental Railroad. As you can imagine, this is pretty backbreaking and tiring. (laughs) Well, so what part of the snake do you use? You know, we're into milking (laughs) snake fangs. Well, if we had a vial of snake oil, you could rub your sore, tired muscles with ointment made from the Chinese water snake, which was an ancient remedy shared with their American co-workers. And this was believed and at least thought at the time to actually help soothe the inflammation of arthritis and muscle spasms. So, I mean, it's it's a little bit interesting because, for instance, you know, we, we're into milking snake fangs nowadays and, and milking spider fangs because we found that some of the properties of the venom have analgesic properties. So that's helpful, but I'm guessing that the snake oil did not actually come from like distillations of the venom. I, mean, I wonder, was it the liver or something or... No, it had nothing to do with the venom. And I'm not even sure if the Chinese water snake is particularly venomous. A neurophysiology researcher from California, Richard Kunin, back in the 80s, actually decided to study this. He made the connection between Chinese water snakes and omega-3 fatty acids. You know, it wasn't until I'd say the mid-90s that we really started focusing on omega-3s, which are really helpful in human metabolism. They soothe inflammation in muscle and joints. They also help cognitive function, reduce blood pressure, cholesterol, and in some cases, even depression. Oil from the water snake, the the Chinese water snake, contains 20%, I'm going to mess this up, eicosapentaenoic acid. EPA, one of the two types of omega-3 fatty acids most easily absorbed and metabolized by our bodies. To give you a means of comparison, uh, when people normally talk about 
omega-3s, they refer to fatty fish such as salmon. So salmon, one of the most popular food sources, contains a maximum of 17 to 18% EPA. So the water snake outdoes, you know, even Chilean sea bass, black cod, and salmon in terms of its omega-3 content. Should find some water snake. I think it'd probably be very good for the heart. Very heart-healthy uh, diet there. All right. Let's put a break on it because we still aren't very sure about the effect of omega-3 fatty acids on cardiovascular health. But at least in terms of relieving inflammation, I hear that little moan. Yeah, I'm not so sure. This is one of those things is anti-inflammatory. Let's lower the inflammation. What inflammation? Well, I'm sure you can imagine that in the dry and dusty wild west, Chinese water snakes were rather hard to come by. Really? No. I'm sure they were just slithering all over the Sonoran Desert and so on. So in order to, and not knowing about the helpful omega-3s and just knowing that Chinese people made snake medicine, Mm -hmm. the local hucksters had to give their remedies credibility and instead claimed that the recipes came from Native American healers. So that way, they could offend multiple ethnicities with one sure. product. Uh, they just need to sell, baby, and ex- yeah, exotic cells. I'm sure the natives that were there on the Pueblo were going like, I, what? I've never seen this before in my life. It's not strictly true, because uh, tribes like the Choctaw, who did use rattlesnake grease to alleviate some pain from rheumatoid arthritis, Oh, of course, in the American Southwest, the rattlesnake, very prevalent, very exciting, very dangerous. So this is where they said the snake oils were all made from. The problem is, remember that omega-3, 20% EPA (laughs) I told you from the water snake? Well, according to the same researcher who checked that out, earth-dwelling rattlesnakes, as opposed to sky-dwelling ones, I don't know. (laughs) Oh, that's all I need to think about, are sky-dwelling water snakes. Thank you for the nightmares, Josh. (laughs) These earth-dwelling rattlesnakes only have about 8% EPA compared to the 20% in water snakes. So really, it might have provided a little bit of resolution, pain alleviation, but by and large, not doing anything near what the original snake oil did. You're better just using a yes. salmon, right? Yes. Go wrestle. Rubbing yourself with salmon. It might be kind of a little bit fishy smelling, but you know. And people bought it hook, line, and sinker. Uh-huh. <laughs> I still want to know where this oil is coming from. I mean, do you squeeze a snake? I just, how do you get oil from a snake, damn it? I I don't know. I'm trying to look it up and I'm not coming up with anything very satisfactory right now. Yeah, like how how to extract oil from a snake or something? Well, the most famous of these snake oil salesmen was a cowboy named Clark Stanley, also known as the Rattlesnake King. Their medical credibility, highly suspect. But boy, did they know how to put on a show because the deadly rattlesnake could be used to heighten the danger and excitement during the pitches of these old style medicine shows. So to sell people on their products (laughs) with elaborate carnival like shows that had live music, puppetry, acrobatics, blackface performers, sideshow acts, people in the audience who would say, oh, my gosh, this cured all my ills. And the show would always end with this dramatic (laughs) demonstration of a healing. Rattlesnake wranglers were hugely popular during these shows because they would 
be fought in the style of like the old Indian taming, boy, I am going to offend everybody in this episode. Actually, it's then not extract too bad, the oil it? from its body by boiling it, yeah. uh, <laughs> grinding it, and making a liniment that could cure everything from measles to typhoid fever. Yeah, because uh, measles are imminently curable with uh, ground up rattlesnake. Absolutely. Let me tell you. Okay, so you would like you'd grind up the flesh of the snake. That's how you get the oil. You'd also boil it. Oh yeah, that's makes it so much better. Thank you. <laughs> it's like yeah. ground up snake soup, practically. At one point, Clark Stanley, if you recall, the Rattlesnake King, which would be a great Marvel villain name. <laughs> Actually, it's not too bad, is it? No, I like the mummy. So I don't know. A shipment of. Of Stanley's snake oil was seized by the U.S. government in 1917 and studied by scientists. And you know, so again, we're looking at like mid 1880s to 1910s when they studied this snake oil liniment. Their research reveals that the most famous rattlesnake oil salesman, his oil contains largely mineral oil, red pepper, which would warm the skin. You know, kind of that chili pepper, traces of turpentine or camphor to give it that medicine-y bitter smell. Fantastic smell. Right. To make you think and it's just actually one percent <laughs> of fatty oil, which probably came from cattle, but it did not contain a single ounce of snake oil, rattlesnake, water snake, or otherwise. And that is the point at which snake oil salesmen really started to come into vogue as a term for a charlatan. Oh, so his snake oil didn't even have snake oil. Nope. The only snake was the one that would usually be murdered during the medicine show, and after he was just giving you chili flakes and turpentine. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, I mean, no harm in that, I suppose. I don't know. What does turpentine do to the brain, Dr. Sean? <laughs> right. Well, I don't know what it does to the brain specifically, oh, but I think I can't that... Dr. J was going to talk about a little bit more about turpentine and what it does in general to yeah, tapeworms, so, right? Well, turpentine, like snake oil, very popular back in the 1880s. Ugh, for the love of God. Believe it or not, still findable at Walmart, her Humco Turpentine Pure Gum as a cleanser. Uh, yeah, it'll, it'll clean you out, I'm pretty sure, right? <laughs> Technically correct. For those of you, again, playing along at home, turpentine is an essential oil that's distilled yeah. from the sap of pine trees. And it used to be used in the past to try and stop heavy bleeding uh, when naval surgeons during the golden age of piracy would inject it hot into wounds. They're like, well, this seals up this seals up problems with the ship leaking. No reason that hot turpentine and pitch tar shouldn't seal up massive hemorrhages as well. And it did. What he's trying to say is it burns everything. Everything. That was in the 1700s when, you know, medicine was very backwards. If we move to the 1800s and you look at and you look at the writings from the <laughs> 1820s through the Civil War, the rectified oil of turpentine is a medicine much less used than it deserves to be. The reason, probably, <laughs> is fear of its God. producing violent effects on the alimentary canal and urinary organs, one doctor wrote in 1821. <laughs> I mean, if the insects are poisoned by it, you know, it couldn't possibly harm a human being. We're so different, they and I. It could greatly be put to use killing internal worms since insects would die instantly if exposed to the liquid. Oh, yeah, I really want that inside my body. Absolutely. Civil War doctors would have patients with tapeworms drink a ounce of turpentine 
every few hours to use as a purgative. Uh, now, turpentine in modern days is used uh, in paint thinner. Oh, the stuff that like kids huff. Yeah, yeah, totally. To give yourself you know, euphoria. Oh, yeah. I think that's, like I said, that's really good for the brain. Uh-huh. Viewed in context, it's easy to understand why doctors back then may have used it in medicine. So pine tar, which is another related product, is a useful ingredient for rashes and skin problems. You'll note I didn't say to swallow. While turpentine oil, which was considered good for lung health, is still an ingredient in Vicks VapoRub. Oh, yeah, that's true. So it is a very useful solvent. Now, I'd like to just briefly go off on a tangent and let you know Vicks VapoRub also began its career as a patent medicine. 1894, Hmm. Greensboro pharmacist Lunsford Richardson II. People in the old-timey times had such great names. Oh, yeah. And if you come to uh, certain parts of Silver Lake here in Los Angeles, you'll hear them all over again. Have you met many hipsters named Lunsford? Gotcha, gotcha. (laughs) (laughs) At that time, this pharmacist developed his ointment Vicks Magic Crew Salve to cure, you know, crew. And it was named for his brother-in-law, Dr. Joshua Vick. And it also included in the product line uh, Vicks Chill Tonic, Vicks, you know, when you have no chill, uh, Vicks Turtle Oil Liniment, Vicks Little Liver Pills, Little Laxative Pills, Tar Heel Sarsaparilla, Yellow Pine Tar Cough Syrup, and Grip Knockers, which is a great term for a cough. What? Grip knockers, eh? Because the grip is how they used to refer to the flu, so it would knock the grip out of you. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. (laughs) I I love how these are always marketed with such a vast number of conditions that it can solve, right? You never sell this as I'll treat one thing. You always sell it as I'm going to treat everything. Well, let's look at what Vicks VapoRub today is advertised for. Deter toenail fungus, headaches, ticks, mosquitoes, scratching of cats, the marking of dogs, the creaking of doors. Uh, It's rubbed underneath the nostrils of people to prevent them from smelling very offensive things. Glenn Beck uses it to weep on command. <laughs> hey, some people, wait, no, maybe I'm thinking of um, Vaseline. They put, the, put it on their teeth so that they keep smiling. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> Vicks VapoRub fits all the qualities of a patent medicine. The difference being it is now much less, well, toxic. Turpentine at the back in the day had three important medical requisites for a patent medicine. It smelled loud, tasted bad, and burned like the woods on fire. Also, especially coming out. Apparently, it makes your urine smell like violets. Don't test that. Oh my! Doesn't it make you curious though? I said, what? What? May, what causes that? Uh, well, hydrocarbon poisoning, largely. Fair enough. Is it like the al- does it make it into aldehydes or something weird like that? You know, I don't know. I, I will admit, I am not a good enough organic chemist to tell you why the compounds it's broken down into make your urine smell like violets. But you can, in fact, track that information down. And I would encourage you to read up on it. Do not try it at home. Um, Because even a single tablespoon of turpentine can be fatal to a child. And it causes lung inflammation, heart arrhythmias. You know, Santosh, what do you know about hydrocarbon poisoning? 
Oh, uh, we went through quite a few of these before with Dr. Ward, right? So um, usually inhalation uh, or exposure on mucosal surfaces causes burns. Um, and I think there's quite a few of them that'll also have acute neurological effects. So you'll get faint and dizzy. Wicked um, nystagmus in, in kids who had huffed stuff, presumably due to like toluene toxicity. toxicity. So acutely, you know, it'll, it'll affect signaling in the brain. And in this case, specifically with cerebellar and uh, bulbar activity. And then that's, yeah. So you can go all the way to death, but in the midst there, you're going to affect, you know, behavior and your eyes and your coordination, and you'll look quite drunk and stuporous. If you mention organic <laughs> chemistry to any, like, uh, physicians, pretty much everybody has nightmares. I can almost guarantee it. Well, that is, you know, so now we've, we've talked about snake oil, we've talked about turpentine, and in both cases, these are things that began as patent medicines, which people automatically assume, you know, just full of chicanery and shenanigans, but actually had real medical uses. Now, turpentine is now, again, I said more of an oil used in Vicks Vapor Rub, but it did kill parasites. It would also just cause hydrocarbon poisoning, aspiration pneumonitis, heart arrhythmias, and a whole bunch of other toxic effects such that it is now, by and large, been phased out of modern medicine. Yeah, I, I will say, you know, just looking this up, Josh, I know that there may be some out there listening that like, oh, I've heard of turpentine therapy for like curing, you know, parasite infestation. I guarantee you no good doctor in their sane mind is going to prescribe you turpentine for your worms. Uh, we've got better treatment than that. And even though we're talking about all these <laughs> patent medicines and how some of them were later proved to have uses, there is going yeah. to be a moral to this story, which yeah. is, you know, don't be so quick to jump on the bandwagon <laughs> because it might be pulling out of town. Um, however, the next condition that often was treated with patent medicines was anemia. And one of these is by far wins the award for my favorite medicine name ever. All right, let's hear it. Now, Santosh, you know, in the past, we've spoken about yeah. how scientists are bad <laughs> at naming things. Yeah, yeah, we really suck. That's why... You always have to have some suits in the room when you're naming a brand new drug. No. Well, it turns out suits and charlatans are fantastic at it because one of the treatments for anemia was named Dr. Williams Pink Pills for Pale People. <laughs> I mean, if I heard that, I would want some for myself. That's for sure. <laughs> Yeah, so you, you're trying to treat pallor or paleness. Pallor is a hard word to say for a populace who was largely uneducated. So pink pills for pale people. Now, it turns out that Dr. Williams was actually doing okay because his pink pills for pale people, which I cannot stop saying, contain iron oxide and magnesium sulfate, which is kind of what you would want to use to treat anemia. So that was a legit medication. The iron for sure, the magnesium, you can get magnesium poisoning and you don't want to have too much mag, but I, I can understand the iron. That's fair enough. Yeah. But but to be honest, like say that the magnesium right. tends to kind of, okay, so iron tends to bind up your, your, your gut. So you get to be complicated. And magnesium <laughs> usually kind of does the opposite. So maybe the common 
was really, really helpful to those patients. Oral magnesium is not so bad unless you have something like myasthenia gravis or something now, like that. Now, this color coding of conditions is, was a hugely okay. popular trend back in the 1800s. And a couple of other examples were Carter's little liver pills for, you know, people who were suffering from just a touch of jaundice. Uh, it wasn't the alcohol they were drinking, no. No, no, no. You actually had to wash this down with whiskey. Dr. Coderre's red pills for pale and weak women. <laughs> you know, that way you could also be misogynistic while oh, you were was that important while you were tricking then? people. And your local psychiatrist charlatans would advertise Dr. Wilson's blue pills for blue people. Was it like the little blue pill of today? <laughs> I'm going to guess not, but... Certainly, I think he was dealing more with uh, sugar pills for depression. But the label on the package for Dr. Williams' pink pills for pale people claimed that in addition to treating, you know, paleness, it was a safe and effective tonic for blood and nerves, anemic conditions caused by thin, impoverished blood and nervous disorders resulting from malnutrition, useful wherever a digestive tonic is required, Guaranteed to contain no opiates or narcotics. Price was 50 cents a pill, or you could get six boxes for $2.50, or 50 cents a bottle. Gotcha. So I have to say, of the patent medicines, that one's not too bad. It seemed like he actually did kind of have people's conditions, if not best interests, always at heart. You wouldn't do a lot of damage to yourself with those. That's true. Although, if I recall correctly, the main thing that the creator of it is now known for today is not this fabulous medication, but for being the very first person to be killed by a motor vehicle in Canada. In That is quite a distinction to have. <laughs> That's so specific, although I guess Canada is quite vast. You know what? This is going to bother me. <laughs> Give me a moment. George Taylor Fulford in the early 1890s was the manager of the company. So not the original creator, but the manager and the distributor who helped it become vastly well-known at the time. And he died in 1905 when he was the first person in Canada uh, who was deceased as a result of a car accident. Oh, gotcha. And now you know two things about him. <laughs> I know I, I have a feeling this is going to be one of these things where I'm not going to be able to forget it. I do like the pink pills for pale it people. Does. That just rolls Doesn't off the it? Yeah. Very catchy. And nowadays we're just like, here, you need to take this iron. I feel like more of my patients would take you know, pale pink pills for pale people than iron. Although then some of my, my brown and black patients may be offended and I can't think of any good way to make alliteration uh, for. No, that's true. Hey, to all of our doctor friends and nurses who are listening, always remember to check those conjunctiva nail beds and under the tongue for pallor. That was in the era when patent medicines used to be in traveling shows. But what you may not know, as long as we're talking about car accidents and the advancement of mm, less than traditional medicines, did you know, Santosh, that doctors used to be able to write prescriptions for alcohol i actually did know this yeah you need a you need a shot of booze for you know one indication or another and uh i i think this was even well before like prohibitionary times but it, it definitely peaked in prohibition 
Methanol poisoning, you know, that, alcohol. Yeah, yeah, for, for a long time. It still right? is, I think, is a good mainstay. Uh, you just, okay, well, methanol is being metabolized, so let's displace the methanol with ethanol so that you don't create that horrible metabolite that'll kill you. But that's usually in an inpatient hospital setting versus being handed a script to go down to your local <laughs> boozery. Well, one famous gentleman, you may know him, Winston Churchill, was in New York on a lecture tour in the early 1930s and was hit by a car. And now, if you don't know a lot about Winston Churchill, you should know a few things. He was British, he was large, and he liked to drink. (laughs) And his physician at the time, Dr. Otto C. Pickhart, (laughs) and this was during the Prohibition era, so you couldn't really get any alcohol without a doctor's note. So I want to read you the actual doctor's (laughs) note Churchill had. This is to certify the post-accident convalescence of the Honorable Winston S. Churchill necessitates the use of alcoholic spirits, especially at mealtimes. The quantity is naturally indefinite, but the minimum requirements would be 250 <laughs> cubic centimeters. I can't, I can't prescribe indefinite, indefinite anything. Wow. I'm sure. I'm sure. Like my license right. would be taken away so fast. It's <laughs> awesome. A naturally indefinite. Just a I, naturally. I like that you put it naturally. Naturally. You know, naturally. naturally. <laughs> if you about this, naturally, you would know that he needs indefinite amount quantities. Which, which, to be fair. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you watched, what was the movie we were talking about earlier, John, about Winston Churchill? The Darkest Hour. Oh. Is you know what? Anything with, with Gary, Gary Oldman at really his watch. finest. It is really worth watching. If you watch it, you get the immediate impression that Winston Churchill, he, he likes Naturally. his alcohol. He liked it in infinite quantities at, brec- at breakfast, in the bathtub, you know, at all meals. So, well, let's talk a little bit about Prohibition era booze prescriptions. And according to Daniel Okrent, author of Last Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition, when it first took effect in 1920, and it lasted through 1933, some 15,000 doctors applied for permits during the first six months. Um, 
Due to a lack of federal oversight, pharmacists and physicians easily turned what was originally meant to be the merciful treatment of conditions, because, mm-hmm. you know, alcohol was believed to have some additional properties at that time, and they turned it into a rather lucrative loophole because they could prescribe access mm-hmm. to pharmacies yeah. that would be stocked like liquor stores. Wow, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. So instead of going to, you know, the corner bottle shop, you go to the corner pharmacy and, uh, you know, stock up on your your rye whiskey and so on and so forth. That's crazy. That's true. But I mean, this is, this is a little bit about, you know, not that marijuana is half as harmful as alcohol, but, you know, that's what was done here in California for the longest time before it was made legal. Was that, yeah, you get a prescription. And a lot of the time the prescription would be for a naturally <laughs> indefinite quality. Indefinite quantity. Uh, chronic fatigue. Chronic fatigue. Headaches, insomnia. These are, you know, you may think, oh, well, yeah, that's what people get. Anxiety. And these are things yeah. that alcohol would be prescribed for, much like sure. uh, in the pre-legal era of marijuana sales. So patients <laughs> could then go down to their local pharmacy and ask for the drink of their choice, um, as long as they had a doctor's note. Could you like, order specific cocktails and things like that? Like you're like, I need a, a Tom Collins today. Um a slow gin fizz. Sadly, you know, no, you didn't. And and we will get to the bartenders, what they did with their their free time. But no, this was just you could get you know bottom shelf liquor at your at your pharmacy. And there were some safeguards that Congress wrote into the law. They weren't completely unwise to the fact that there might be some people who took advantage of this. So much like the opioid crisis. There were some limits that said patients couldn't obtain more than a pint of spirituous liquor every 10 days, and that prescriptions could not be refilled more than once. And then you got even more restrictions back in, let's see, uh, prohibitionists kept pushing for more and more restrictions. But then in 1921, only a year after Prohibition began, <laughs> mind you, emergency the beer. Willis-Campbell Act was passed, which was known as the Emergency Beer I'm, Bill. I'm, that bans prescription. I'm trying to say, like, it, it makes, it has, it's a different sound if you go, emergency beer well, bill that was, versus <laughs> emergency beer bill. Well, this was a higher regulation one. It you know, because people were obtaining all sorts of alcohol at their pharmacies, and the Williams-Campbell oh. Act... But specifically prohibited emergency beers. It bans prescription of beer as a medicinal treatment. Hmm. Beer specifically. And then it also lowered the cap on alcohol per prescription from a pint to a half pint and limited physicians to only 100 prescriptions for alcohol for anyone every 90 days. Past, doctors typically only wrote a script every 10 days for a half pint of alcohol. Oh, okay. I guess mm. that's some so. Sort after of that, yeah. So again, you know, we're looking at people who are trying to deal with their equivalent of the opioid crisis, and I think it's interesting yeah. in those yeah. historical terms. That's yeah, because nowadays, you know, you can't, any opioid script that you write, it can't be refilled, and so on and so forth, and. There's only sure. certain amounts that you can prescribe, and rightly so, to prevent probably what was going on in back in the uh, prohibition era. You know, well, 
And just like today's <laughs> opioid yeah. monitoring, because we do have a prescription <laughs> drug monitoring list to prevent people from doctor shopping or pharmacy hopping, back then, physicians who did have a liquor license, which I love that that was a thing. Yeah. Physicians who had a liquor license had to supply the government with their patient list, but it didn't require them to be specific about treatments. So you could have one physician just listed the catch-all term for physical weakness, deconditioning, or debility on his ledger to justify pints of rye for his patients. <laughs> okay, okay. I mean, I, I understand you're trying to control a substance. It wasn't the smartest thing to do to, you know, prohibition in the first place, in my opinion. But yeah, I, I understand you're trying to kind of get a handle on this so that people weren't just writing phony scripts for booze. And these were not cheap phony scripts, by the way, like the average prescription for alcohol ran patients about $3, which I know what you're thinking. Oh, three whole dollars. No, no. <laughs> put it put it in 2018 terms. Yeah. But in 2018 terms, it's equivalent to about 45 to $50 for a pint of alcohol. And I don't think I've been to, you know, even the most exclusive yeah. bar club in New York that can get away with charging. Cost about another 2 yeah. to $3 to fill those prescriptions. So they would have to pay uh. once to get the prescription and then again to the pharmacy uh. to fill it. Uh, it's just i mean this is kind of like classism all over again right like it's if you're if you're you know kind of white wine and chardonnay type of person then oh it's fine you can have as much as you want but if it's a beer no emergency beer no emergency beer no emergency <laughs> beer for you i love how it changes just wherever you put the comma yeah. <laughs> Every so often, I, I get a day where I feel like oh, I need emergency right, beer. One person who <laughs> benefited a lot from prohibition yeah. may surprise you. This was an era when oh, okay. your local drugstore expanded to become a massive drugstore. And do you know which one I'm referring to? Maybe Woolworths? Mm. I'm guessing it's not CVS, because I don't think that stands for anything. Close, Walgreens. During the 1920s, Charles R. Walgreen of yeah. Walgreens fame <laughs> expanded from 20 stores to 525 <laughs> thanks to medicinal alcohol sales. But if you ask him, he attributed the expansion to the introduction of milkshakes at his stores. Because his milkshakes bring all the boys and to the And they're like, the it's better than yours. He can teach you. <laughs> But he'd have to change. Let's bring it back, people. Let's bring it back. <laughs> but the milkshake was not the only thing bringing all the boys to the yard for Walgreens. And he actually was not necessarily that far off in his assessment because let's go back in time again doo -doo 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 -doo, to the early 19th century when a lot of people believed their health could be improved by an invigorating bath in natural mineral springs. Not an uncommon attitude to find even today. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think you had a dip in uh, Japan's mineral springs, didn't you? Yes. One of the few times I immersed myself in I... water, which, as we all know, is on an active campaign to kill me. <laughs> I hate to go on a non sequitur, but I just read an article where hot springs have been reported to lower stress in Japan's popular bathing monkeys, the little Japanese macaques. 
don't know. So it not only helps the, you know, human health, it also helps uh, other non-human primates. <laughs> I desperately want to be the scientist who has to capture the monkey after it's had a relaxing bath and then draw its blood to check cortisol levels. I don't understand. The stress levels seem to be exactly the same after I put this net on this monkey. I'm pretty sure it would totally reverse. Yeah, exactly. Either that or you had to hook up like electrodes to the monkey to actually like read the muscle tension and everything and then just like let it wander into the hot spring. That would be a fun job too. I'm applying for that position right now. What's the website? Monkey Bather? Yeah, mon- monkeybather.gov.jp. <laughs> well, if a dip in a natural mineral spring could improve your health, like if it's good to bathe in, then surely it's also good to drink. <laughs> this is one of those more is better things. So, so a lot of these local drugstores like Walgreens and a few other pharmacies, as Prohibition shuttered all the bars, they began opening soda shops. And that's because these would be the new hangout places. You came to drink your carbonated water for the health benefits, and then you hung around reading the free books and conversing with other intelligent people who were also there to drink carbonated water. Well, that sounds like it sounds like that sounds so today. Like, don't you, can't you imagine hipsters doing that today? No, no, that's it's it's trying to make a comeback, right? The modern soda fountain. So yeah, no, we those that soda fountain style pharmacy was still around in the Midwest. You know, you could go to Kansas and Iowa and Nebraska and find um, pharmacy soda fountains um, all the way through like till the 1980s. And this is when sodas became known as soft drinks because they didn't contain hard liquor. They were a legal alternative to cocktails and often shared many ingredients mm. with cocktails. Oh, oh, all, all that. Uh, I got you, got you. Okay. Well, that's because initially, remember, carbonated water was still viewed as a health drink. So the first soda shops were in drugstores and linked with the pharmacies because this is the process of carbonating water and making syrups or flavorings or mixtures is something pharmacists already had the skill set to do. So they were the obvious people to take this on, and they could add in ingredients to the sodas that they thought would provide health. So sarsaparilla, you know, also known as root beer, was linked to curing syphilis. I didn't say it worked. I said it was linked. No, no, no. It's, it's just that there is so much for syphilis, because syphilis has been around for so long. We have tried to throw everything, including malaria, at syphilis. Phosphoric acid was seen as something that could help hypertension and other and also phosphate itself imparts a sour flavor to a drink like a lemon zest without the citrus taste oh yeah you could actually no so you could go for like a cherry phosphate at one of these soda fountains and that's what they put in it they put do the cherry syrup with a little bit of like you know the sparkling water and then they put the phosphate in there as well and you drink that like it, it, it was like a non-milkshake milkshake type of thing. Uh, nice. And these pharmacists would also use sweet tasting soda like flavors to mask the taste of bitter medicines like quinine and iron, as most medication was taken in liquid form during the early 20s. So a lot of pharmaceutical tinctures and tonics were already mixed with alcohol, which made those pungent medicinal flavors already enticing. So a lot of the medicine you would take would have as much alcohol as a shot of whiskey. So here's where the prohibition really starts to kick in. 
So these soda shops start evolving because people need somewhere else to hang out. Pharmacists already know how to mix a lot of different flavors to help mask these bitter medicines. And a lot of the medicines they made already had a little bit of alcohol. So suddenly people got a lot more invested in taking their medicine. Then pharmacists moved on in, you know, making soda mixtures with stronger components known as nervines. And nervines were a category that can include anything from strychnine, morphine, heroin, and a new miracle compound isolated in 1855, cocaine. There was, through most of the 20s, about about 0.01 to 0.03 grams of cocaine used in all fountain sodas. For those of you who are not quite sure how to put that into context, it's about a tenth to an eighth of a line of Coke. Whoa. Okay. I didn't realize it was that much. Now, it's hard to be sure, but I don't think a tenth of a line of Coke would have given people a massive high, but it would probably be enough to have some kind of effect stronger than caffeine. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm guessing they would have gotten a bit of a jolt. And even though these dosages are small, they were certainly habit-forming, and soda fountains made a huge profit from such consistent customers, which really puts Scooby-Doo in a whole different light, along with most of like those 1940s and 50s where you see all the kids hanging around at the soda shop. Well, by that time, surely they had taken out, you know, all these stronger... Intoxicating fun was slowed somewhat in 1915 when the Harrison Act prohibited pharmacists from dispensing cocaine and opiates without a prescription. But it did not, but it did not stop them from mixing it into health benefit sodas, which is why you were still getting these slight habit forming ones. Let's talk about some of these medicinal sodas, yeah, my friends. Definitely. And I think that'd be a good place to to wrap up. I'll I'm gonna go over some the big three. Now of course oh. I know everyone's waiting for me to talk about Coca-Cola. Uh, Civil War veteran and pharmacist John Stith Pemberton <laughs> concocted the original Coca-Cola mixture while he was experimenting with opiate-free painkillers to soothe his own war wounds. He was addicted to opiates and trying to come up with a new painkiller so he could get off it. So Coca-Cola already kind of was tied in to the the drug problems of the day. You might be wondering what his problem was. Well, in April of 1865, he took a saber wound to the chest okay. and then became addicted to the morphine used to ease his pain. In 1866, he began seeking and again, soared through the wow. chest, led to the invention of Coca-Cola. Let's let's all appreciate that for a moment. Wow, that's good trivia there. Yeah. In 1866, wow. seeking a cure for his addiction as that's a pharmacist, he began yeah. to experiment with painkillers that would serve as opium free alternatives to morphine. With public concerns about drug addiction, oh. depression, and alcoholism among war veterans, he came oh. up with a oh, Coca Cola as a health drink <laughs> containing the wonderful properties of the coca plant <laughs> and the famous cola nuts. So it was those two components that brought the name. So yes, everybody focuses on the fact that, oh, you know, Coca-Cola had cocaine in it early on and to get people addicted. Well, no, the whole idea is that it was supposed to be a health drink to help people get away from a morphine addiction. You know, that's not the first time I've heard this um, this, this ploy to uh, to get people off of the addiction of morphine by using cocaine. Like I think even what Sigmund Freud had the same same morphine addiction and he used cocaine he turned to cocaine to actually get himself off of the the morphine addiction. And of course subsequently became addicted to cocaine. Cigars and all these other and you know references to mothers and so on and so forth. But I digress. I mean it, it- 
it makes perfect sense to us now why this doesn't work, but I can totally understand why, you know, if you had such a, a horrific substance like uh, morphine or heroin, you know, circulating around back then as it is now, you would just try absolutely anything, you know, to try to get away from it. And it makes sense that, hey, you know, it worked and it takes a while you know, for the cocaine addiction to kick into the point to where it's, you know, starting to harm you. So in the midst of it, you just feel really good. The haze is gone. You know, you're able to think clearer and you think you're done with heroin. And it would absolutely would, as an upper, it would absolutely put pep in your step compared to people who are largely sedentary from the depressant effects of opiates. Sure. Um, again, not endorsing cocaine. Do you, we do not recommend. <laughs> it cracks me up that we have to say that, but yeah, we have to say Look, that. We live in a world where kids are eating Tide Pods. I can't take anything for granted. <laughs> oh, that's so sad. Now, so that's Coca-Cola, which again, remember, one of the biggest sodas in the world created because a guy took a sword through the chest and wanted to get off his morphine habit the sword the chest. that should become a thing i think you know like wow that should become the new meme <laughs> sword to the chest created a soda <laughs> um i i'm fairly sure that they wouldn't shy away from that you know pepsi took a chance on the pepsi will cure racism thing uh, maybe sword to the chest will be like a step up for them. <laughs> well, Coca-Cola's biggest competitor also started out with pharmaceutical roots. Oh, come know... on. Seriously? Yep. Yeah. Pepsi, Pepsi. Do you know the original name for Pepsi-Cola? This comes up for those of you who play bar trivia. I, I think it, it was it was for um, to cure like stomach ales, right? You know, so like some sort of Pepsi... Like it, it referred to like peptic acid and things like that, but I don't remember the original name. The original name was Brad's Drink. <laughs> so, <laughs> good <laughs> change. <laughs> Pharmacist Caleb Bradham owned a drugstore, the Bradham Drug Company, which, like many other stores, had a soda fountain. And in it, his own creation was called Brad's Drink, contained pepsin a digestive enzyme, oh, and cola nuts. It, it had pepsin in it, so that's the digestive enzyme that you find in your stomach. Okay. There we go. And it was believed to help settle, and even today, I think, you know, one of the remedies from my childhood would be if you have an upset stomach, drink a little bit of flat right. soda because the syrup in it will help soothe you. Um, and that's kind of what he was doing at his soda shop, uh, but with carbonated pepsin cola Brad's drink. Nice. So not quite as impressive as a sword to the chest, but you can still see right. the, the remnants of that original, that original recipe in Pepsi from Pepsi. Okay. If you're really a Coca-Cola fan, a diehard fan, you can always, you know, counter to those Pepsi diehards and say, well, my, chest to, my sword to the chest is better than your upset stomach. <laughs> and then you have the ones that went, you know, way out into the deep end to treat conditions, such as the lemon-lime-flavored soda, 7-Up. Okay. Was it also created by a pharmacist? It was created by Charles Lipper Grigg in 1929, and originally, and for a long time, was called Bib Label Lithiated Lemon-Lime Soda, quickly shortened to 7-Up for advertising purposes, and contained lithium what? citrate. Its advertisements claimed that it takes the ouch <laughs> out of grouch. 
Where did the seven come from? There's a lot of apocryphal stories, whether it had seven original ingredients or he just liked the way of the seven, seven syllables from bib, label, lithiated, lemon, lime, soda. Like it, I couldn't find a clear reason for how it got shortened. He included lithium to even out the mood swings, and he figured that the chemical's presumed healthful aspects would be a selling point with the soda-buying public. Lithium is actually really good for bipolar disorder if it's used properly. Um, what's, the, what's the big problem with it? Why can't you just throw it in water and drink it? The um, elemental compound will combine with water and make an explosion. That's one thing. Hmm. <laughs> I'm guessing 7-Up no longer has lithium in it, right? <laughs> All right? Okay, so fine. A lithium salt, smarty pants. Yeah, that, exactly. Right, right, right. But it it has a narrow a narrow window of um, efficacy so that if you get to like kind of a higher level, it starts to become toxic and you can have a lot of, um, a lot of particular issues. As soon as you give a little too much, it becomes toxic, slowly get uh, tremors as well as interfering with a bunch of other medications. But if you do too little, then, you know, you're not treating the depression or the mania appropriately. And so all of a sudden their depressive symptoms or manic symptoms just come flying back. And the problem is that therapeutic window is not only really narrow, but it's different from person to person, you know, just for added sight. So that brings us to the end of this episode where we have taken you all the way from snake oil to soda and all of them are still by and large less harmful to you than bee sting therapy or shoving glitter or jade eggs inside any body cavities. Why, Dr. Josh, whatever are you referring to? You'd have to have goop for brains. Seriously, guys, we're just, we're not fans of non-evidence-based kind of crap medicine. And, um, you know, the, the OOP brand, G-O-O-P, um, made up by Gwyneth Paltrow, is kind of the flagship model of like... Modern day hucksterism and patent medicine peddling. Yeah, there you, there you go. Yeah, it's it's a lot of let's just throw some crap out there and see who buys. Please, please, if you're going to think about any of those things, just talk to your physician first. And I'm sure if they're a good doctor, they will tell you that that's all hogwash. Now, before I share our just the tip for the week, I would like to share with you, you at home as well as you other folks a little excerpt of a medicine show style song that you might have heard back in the day if you attended one of these patent medicine shows. Uh, and one of the most famous Hollywood-based patent medicine peddlers was none other than the Wizard of Oz. Oh, that's true. Think about it. Big, big show, big <laughs> selling point. And what, in, what did he give each of the people at the end? Not a damn thing. He said they had it all along. <laughs> That's true. It, it was within you the whole time. But go back, watch the original Wizard of Oz, and you'll see that he starts out as a traveling con man, and that has always been what the wizard is. But here is a patent medicine show song. Hmm. You ask me what's good wow. for a cold. You want something new, not old. Just everything. That's like the, you know, the, uh, the music man, you know, just heads right out of town. Or for you Simpson fans, monorail. 
Cures what ails ya, including pimples, toenail fungus, colds. So, those of you who are interested, this week's just the tip is Tombstone, Arizona, <laughs> which would have been a huge fun. stop for some of these patent medicine shows, including such famous tourist attractions as the OK Corral, one of the most famous gunfights where Wyatt Earp and the Clantons fought for dominance and they have three reenactments of the gunfights that take place every single day and you can take a buggy ride of the entire town after you've watched that, that shootout fancy. you can head on up to boot hill graveyard where it's one of the most famous resting places for a lot of the legends who died during the wild west and many of the people who made tombstone the city it is are buried in that cemetery the birdcage theater is an old saloon that was one of the most popular places that still has some of the original bullet holes in the wall with six recently renovated underground rooms that are supposedly haunted if you would like to try spending the night in a haunted hotel. Uh, and finally, yeah. the Courthouse State Historic Park, which has a collection of historical artifacts from the Old West that even includes a recreated gallows, much like the kind used to hang criminals back in the day. So, uh... If you are a fan of Westerns, Tombstone, Arizona is your go-to place. Well, that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. All our sources for the show, as well as links to support us spiritually, emotionally, and financially are included in the show notes. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Ledger. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from all our co-hosts. And until next time... As always, happy travels. See ya. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 